Would you please pray with me? God, we look and listen for a word from you to give us a point of view that is more than our own. Help us to chew on your word, savor it, and be made well by it. Amen. Sarah Patton Boyle was perhaps the most outspoken white integrationist in Virginia. Despite being named by Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous letter uh, from the Birmingham jail as one of six white writers deemed useful to the civil rights movement, she isn't someone whose name most of us would recognize. I only recently learned about Sarah Patton Boyle when I read about her ghostwriting efforts to integrate the South. Evidently, Sarah Patton Boyle believed and was consumed by the idea that a campaign of white Southerners writing letters to the editors of local newspapers to protest segregation could succeed in integrating blacks and whites living in the South. At first, she wrote letters to the editors of local newspapers, the Norfolk Virginian Pilot and the Richmond Times Dispatch, only to learn that letters expressing critical points of view needed to be signed. And furthermore, that the editors refused to print over and over again the same person's letters. Before long, she signed the letters S.L. Patton, or Sarah Lindsay, or Sarah P. Boyle, or Mrs. Roger Boyle Jr., or S. Lindsay Patton, and to increase the volume of letters beyond this rotation of names, she hatched the idea of organizing white men and women with similar views into a letter-writing brigade. She scoured newspapers for the names of people who had written single letters in support of integration and then contacted them to ask them to write more. She asked her friends, as well as people she barely knew, to write letters in their names. And if some were shy about their letter-writing skills, she offered to write the letters for them, to which they could affix their signatures, so that the letters wouldn't be written in the same style. She began to recruit other ghost writers. The aim was to flood the papers with letters from white people protesting segregation. She was convinced that these letters would boost confidence in those white Southerners who might be too scared to speak out, resulting in such overwhelming social and political support that the few white Virginians truly committed to segregation would be defeated. In the end, her ghostwriting efforts didn't grow into the cam campaign that she had envisioned. And as we know, the victories of the civil rights movement were accomplished by and large by the strategic efforts of African Americans more than by white Southerners. Reflecting on what she learned from her efforts, Sarah Patton Boyle wrote about having vested too much hope and optimism in the goodness of humanity, her fellow Southerners, her friends. The friends she had those who had sworn to share her views only to have stopped inviting her to parties and who avoided making eye contact with her when, she, when they saw her in town, disappointed her most. 
she realized that she was mistaken to look to human beings rather than to God for faithfulness. About her disappointment, she wrote, In 1950, I had many inner mansions built of the loftiness of man, the mellow loveliness of Dixie, the steadfastness of friends, my own capacity to give and take. Nothing remained of all this now. End of quote. While her experience increased her faith in God ultimately, it depleted her faith in human beings. God gave her some things to say, and not unlike some others in the Christian prophetic tradition, Sarah Patton Boyle was consumed by an obsession to say them again and again, and there was a cost. In the scripture lesson we heard this morning, the prophet Jeremiah laments this cost. He is in a no-win situation. Jeremiah laments that God has given him things to say, words that burn inside of him if he tries to hold them in, and words that make him an object of ridicule and contempt when he speaks them. Everyone mocks him all day long, and his close friends conspire against him. It's hard to be a friend to someone who wherever he goes and whomever he is with, is always crying out violence and destruction. Jeremiah is hard company to keep, even to himself. It's hard to be around people who feel compelled all the time to call people and situations out for the injustices, inconsistencies, social and moral hypocrisies they observe. No one wants to be around the morality police all the time, even when you agree with them and have never been called out by them, you may find it hard to be at ease in their presence. This is something that many of us have had to navigate in recent years with people we know, with coworkers, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, and strangers on social media. Each of us has had to work out for ourselves when and over what and how to address injustices that we encounter and how to be around others who are trying to figure it out too. What we've learned is that call-out culture leads to cancel culture. It's not surprising that those who are called out will become canceled. But ironically, there's a good chance that the very people who are busy calling out injustices will themselves eventually become canceled. This is what happened in 2020 to Flannery O'Connor. Southern writer Flannery O'Connor was lauded by critics for her anti-racist short stories, stories that shocked the racist sensibilities that were common among white Christian Southerners. One of her finest anti-racist parables for which she received critical acclaim was Revelation. Revelation was the last fictional work Flannery O'Connor wrote at the age of 39, just three months after completing it. She died of lupus. In fact, she had written the short story while she was in the hospital, sitting upright in her hospital bed, 
Nauseated from antibiotics and suffering severe pain, she took pen to paper and wrote. So that the nurses wouldn't stop her, she hid the papers under her pillow. Her mother said that she was like a woman obsessed. In a journal she kept, Flannery O'Connor wrote what no one understood, that the story she was writing, Revelation, wouldn't let her be. It begged to be written. It came to her faster than any other story she had ever written, faster, she hoped, even than death. Revelation is a tale about a racist, classist, self-righteous, an obscenely smug white woman named Ruby Turpin, who thanks Jesus every day that she is not white trash or a black person. But Ruby gets her comeuppance when a young girl named Mary Grace calls her an old warthog from hell and smacks her upside the head with a human development textbook. This violent act of grace complicates then reverses Ruby's vision of the world. Later that day, while washing down the hogs on her farm, Ruby growls at God, what do you send me a message like that for? How am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell both? God answers by granting Ruby a life-altering divine vision in which the allegedly last are first, and the supposedly first are last. A vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were companies of white trash and bands of blacks in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics, and bringing up the end of the procession was herself and Cloud. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Because of this and her other stories that offered a sharp critique of Bible Belt racism, readers of Flannery O'Connor often thought of her as being a prophetic writer. It wasn't until the personal letters she wrote over her lifetime became published in 2019 and 2020 55 years after her death, that people learned that the real-life person of Flannery O'Connor didn't live up to the writer of Flannery O'Connor. The letters reveal a woman who was clearly racist, racist at a time when contemporaries such as Maya Angelou, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King Jr., and Sarah Patton Boyle provided other moral options. In July 2020, in the midst of the pandemic and the protests for racial justice that ensued after police murdered George Floyd in Minneapolis, Flannery O'Connor got canceled. This may or may not have caught your attention amidst all that was happening at that time. I learned about it in an essay written by Jacqueline Bessie, who was the executive director of the Collegeville Institute. With the first-time publication of Flannery O'Connor's letters, several of which contained blatantly derogatory racist comments, 
students at Loyola University in Maryland circulated an online petition with over a thousand signatures that resulted in the removal of Flannery O'Connor's name from a residence hall. As you can imagine, the removal of her name from the dormitory caused a social media war among scholars taking different sides. The debates brought to the fore the disturbing discrepancy between O'Connor's letters and her fiction and the question of how to make sense of it. How do you make sense of such discrepancies between the person and the prophet? Some might take a psychological approach and look for clues for the person's, from the person's childhood to make sense of the incoherence. Others might examine the social context in which a person lived and acknowledge that the norms governing society powerfully shape a person despite their most conscious and best prophetic intentions. Realists among us might simply say that everyone is flawed and that few, if any, could survive the moral purity test to which people are currently being subjected to. I suspect that many of the people depicted in the stained glass windows surrounding us would have been canceled by today's culture. I suspect that people who preach for a living run the risk of being canceled. If discrepancies between the person and the prophet are inevitable, does this mean that we shouldn't bother to pay attention to prophetic voices and visions in the first place? Does it mean that we shouldn't value the prophetic things that other people have to say or that when we ourselves feel compelled to speak out about an injustice, we shouldn't bother? Though Jeremiah, Sarah Patton Boyle, and Flannery O'Connor didn't live in today's call-out and cancel culture, they most certainly wrestled with the discrepancy between being a person and a prophet. We feel the pain and the pathos of their struggles in Jeremiah's lament to God and Sarah Patton Boyle's religious reflections. We find it also in Flannery O'Connor's prayers to God. In addition to writing short stories and letters, she kept a prayer journal. And there, she repeatedly confessed her complete dependence on God's grace. She was a different person when God got a hold of her, she wrote. Apart from God's grace, she was, quote, a broken, egocentric, hypocritical sinner, end of quote. She openly declared, grace can and does use its medium, the, me the imperfect, pur purely human, and hypocritical. Comparing novelists to prophets, she understood herself to be a recipient of prophetic vision. My vision, she wrote, I have had it given me whole by faith because I couldn't possibly have arrived at it by my own powers. Her vision, she believed, came from God. In reading her prayer journal, it is clear that what emerged from her hand was in spite of herself, that as a writer, she was called to be God's mouthpiece, or as she put it, God's typewriter.
God was her ghostwriter. This is how Flannery O'Connor made sense of the discrepancy between herself and what she wrote. As a prophet, she never claimed that she was a saint. And in fact, on more than one occasion, she explicitly rejected the notion that she was a saint. She thought depictions of saints were dishonest. Instead, Flannery O'Connor took to heart the biblical depictions of God's prophets, whose own utter unworthiness, helplessness, and moral deformities were revealed by the very words God spoke through them. There is a concept in literature that Flannery O'Connor put to use very well in her work and in her life. It's the concept of grotesqueness. Grotesque refers to something or someone that invokes in the reader or audience a feeling of disgust, repulsion, even horror. Characters are morally grotesque when their moral incongruity, the discrepancy between the good they know and the good they do, between them as prophets and them as persons, cause us to cringe or recoil. There's another response, however, that grotesqueness simultaneously invokes. While it invokes a feeling of disgust, it also invokes a feeling of sympathetic pity. There's something in a person's conflictedness with which we can sympathize, in which we can see ourselves. Flannery O'Connor applied the concept of grotesqueness to her characters and to herself. The good in people, she thought, was under construction. Just like anything under construction, it's not a pretty sight. As much as we wish we were saints, people who could never be canceled, people who beam beautifully all the time. In truth, we are works under construction. At best, we are grotesque. It's important to realize this, to be real about it, and not to cancel it, because only when we truly recognize how grotesque we really are can we make room for God's grace. Without God's grace, the gap between person and prophet cannot be bridged. We all deserve to be called out and canceled. Fortunately, God's grace abounds, giving us words that tell us the truth about ourselves and about others. That as imperfect as we are, God does not cancel us, but beholds us, sees some potential in us, has mercy on us, and ultimately recreates us. Amen.